Steve Moak is a mechanical engineer working in the industrial gas space. Currently, he is the director of on-site plant solutions for Cosmodyne. Steve is strong in strategic partnerships, presentations, market analysis, customer base, and company development. He is also the father of two sons, one of which committed suicide just over a year ago. In this conversation, Steve openly shares how he continues to navigate the loss of his son. Join Steve and me in this episode, Guilty of Heresy, Life After a Child's Suicide. So Steve, you are the father of two sons and your younger son, Eric, committed suicide just over a year ago. So let's start with Eric as a little person. Can you tell me about him growing up? Kind of what was it like for him in terms of where did you guys live and a little bit about his personality and family dynamics? Sure, sure. Well, growing up, um, we lived for the most part in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, was married at the time. Actually, Eric um, was from my first marriage, both boys actually. So remarried, um, you know, just lived kind of a normal life in terms of Eric. I mean, he, he was always just a bit of a joker, big, huge heart. I mean, even going back, it, it's funny, you, you, you contrast him with my other son who, it's probably a little more like me, a little more serious. Um, you know, maybe the heart is a little deeper to find, you know, not so much on the surface kind of thing. Um, so, Eric, I mean, just, a, you know, just a good kid. I mean, liked by all um, kind of growing up. Um, funny story. Uh, so we moved over to China for a few years and um I remember crossing the street with Eric, just to give you a sense of his, his sense of humor. And he would be singing the song because the traffic was just crazy. He would be singing the song, Staying Alive from Saturday Night Fever as we would That's cross awesome. the street. <laughs> and every time it was just like so, uh, I don't know, it just that it, good example of personality and, uh, you know, just a you know, good kid. Um, you know, he, he was he was very you know busy athlete, athletically. He was uh, did very well in school, and I think you know um, he changed a bit when I got divorced. And um, his you know my my ex really was quite close to Eric, and she made the mistake. There was a there was a particular example where. Um, she was going to, she asked to pick Eric up from soccer practice. I'm like, yeah, cool. You know, I, I don't, it was one of those situations where we truly had grown apart. We did not dislike each other. It was just, you know, it's not, it's just not for us anymore. The marriage situation. Yeah. So she goes to pick Eric up and she picks him up with some guy in the car, which is probably only about a month after we split. So I get it, you know, six months later, a year later, and that really, really bothered him it's like you know she she certainly presented him as her new guy you know after basically being for for basically Eric's life to that point being you know his mother so to speak um and then he, he kind of you know from school lost some interest um you know it was a bit of a challenge basically and not not a bad challenge but just just a typical kind of 
boy challenge. And then um, probably about 10 years ago, we moved from Pennsylvania to Houston. Um, and the reason we moved was, you know, predominantly because of my work. I chose to, to change companies. Um, you know, I really ran it by Eric as far as, you know, hey, I know you're in school. Is this an issue? He was completely fine with it. At least that's what he said. Um, my other son had gone off to college, so it was like kind of the right time to make a move, so to speak. And how old was Eric at that time, Steve? Was he? I think he, you know, I could do the math, but I'm going to go with, you know, maybe 14, that type of number. Um, yeah, Close to high school, freshman, Close eighth grade, freshman, school, something like that. Yeah, 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 not quite in high school yet. In fact, that's probably a, a good um Marty, that's probably a good measure. I think he was he was either in seventh or eighth grade. Um, so we were really living in a particular area, um, you know, kind of outside of the city. And I was at, um, you know, a work event and received a call from the school nurse that, uh, you know, come, you need to come get her. You know, it was quite a distance away. And I went there and, uh, I notice as I pull up in front of the school, there's a police car there. Okay. And I go in and I see a cop standing there with um, what's looked to be an administrator type and also a nurse. And here's Eric. And, um, you know, I won't get into the details, but basically he started, uh, told me what happened and he did ecstasy, you know, at mm. 14 years old. And um, you know, bought it from some other kid, and it turns out he had some kind of a little hash brownie business going on, and it's like, okay. Um, and then, you know, so we got through that event. Um, essentially, what happened was, you know, they did charge him. Um, he went to an alternative school for like a few months. And when we went to court, I basically asked the judge to do, you know, random drug testing. I said, you know, I don't want this to become a, um, uh, you know, a, a start of something much larger. You know, maybe this is a chance that if he's fearful of the drug testing, et cetera. And it, and it appeared to work that he stayed away from things for some time. Um, and then it became close. He, he, he had some desire to go to college. Um, I think probably more to party than to learn something. Right. But, okay. You know, maybe that's the age. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm advancing a couple of years, you know, yes. so maybe we're going into 10th or 11th grade. Um, and, you know, he took the, the SATs or he took some tests and it really was quite bad. And, and at that point, he kind of turned off really doing anything in school. And, um, you know, just kind of getting by, you know, it was clear he wasn't going to go to school. And he, he actually pre-enlisted in the army, um, which actually was a good thing. His last year in high school, um, you know, he obviously lived with me and it was, he was, he was motivated enough to get done high school. And because he had pre-enlisted in the military, they did random drug tests such that he actually said to me one day, I said, why did you do it? He's like, cause I don't want to be a bum. I'm like, well, okay, you know, I get it. Nice initiative, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so he went in the, the army um, for about four years, um, ran into some difficulties with 
Um, he, on one of his first leaves, he went to um, kind of a Mardi Gras situation and um, drinking too much, driving, got caught with a D, D, DUI, um, really high level of alcohol. Um, the Army does not take well to that at all. They did not mm. dishonorably discharge him, but they basically, they have several things they do in terms of, you know, punishment, in terms of both pay, in terms of rank, in terms of having, putting you through a, a kind of, um, you know, a, a, a treatment program. And it seemed somewhat effective. Uh, he actually deployed uh, a, a couple of times, once to Poland and once to uh, Korea, and then chose as, you know, he was getting kind of done his four-year term, he chose to leave the army. You know, he, he, he almost ran, he didn't walk away from the army. Yeah, um, it's one question, Steve. So we, you brought up when he was younger, this, you know, kind of um, big heart and, and funny and you know i met him one time and that was very apparent to me his his very charming and just very um gorgeous smile and that that's i saw that with my one encounter with him with the whole ecstasy and the drinking in the military and things did you was that from your perspective as dad just kid stuff just normal party stuff or were there any other elements of like a restlessness or an unsettled that you saw in his say high school and beyond years? Sure, I mean, it's a great question. And, and Marnie, you know, believe me, after the event of him taking his life, you of course do a bunch of soul searching for, you know, in the case of me months at a time um, to say, you know, what could you have diff done differently? What did you miss? And I can't say other than he did like to, you know, party, I mean, it, and I attributed it to because there was a couple times where he would be in town, maybe with a few of his army buddies, and it was like the boys' testosterone club, you know, the the eighteen, nineteen year old carrying on drinking. I mean, so I always, I never saw it to the extent that I thought, okay, yes, clearly he shouldn't be drinking and driving to that extent. But people do, and um, the same was true with his partying. So I, I never really saw it as, you know, this this kid has a severe problem that that really yeah. needs to be addressed. Because interestingly enough, when he got out of the army, he took a job with a company that does offshore oil rig work. So you basically go out for two weeks, and then you work like a hard. And then you come back and you have two weeks off. So you live this, this two week on off lifestyle. When he would go out to the ship, there was no drinking. There was no alcohol. I mean, he smoked, there was no smoking. I mean, it was, it was basically you worked, you went to sleep, you got up and you did it again the next day. And uh, he seemed to, you know, have absolutely no issue with switching off the party lifestyle. Cause of course, when he came back into town, I mean, the job actually paid quite well. Um, he 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 went back into you know a bit of party mode, which again, as a 23-year-old, 22-year-old kid was probably a bit excessive, but again, didn't really appear to be a huge major issue, at least, you know. Yeah. 
from my perspective. And again, when he got out of the army, we, both of us chose, I mean, he didn't want to live with rules and, and, um, you know, with me because of that. And the flip side, I, I kind of didn't want to live with him either, but just because, you know, we, two different you're two ages. adults, you're two adults at this time. So it's, it's always, absolutely. It's, and we, yeah. we're, we're at such different, we were at such different points in our life that, you know, um, it just, it just wouldn't have worked. So he actually got an apartment that was probably less than a mile away from where I lived. So it was, it was, it was very common to see each other almost on a weekly basis that I would call him or he would call me and we would do lunch together. We'd meet somewhere and, you know, whatever. So we, we actually interacted quite a bit. Yes. So when he left the military and you said earlier, he, he, practically ran from there so wasn't a fan of it I guess or no just and it's funny because he didn't seem to have you know some people I hear that you know did a, a time in the military really have an issue with just the uh, the lifestyle someone yelling at you someone telling you what to do and he never had an issue with that whatsoever I mean it didn't seem like it particularly bothered him other than the fact that maybe he was under contract and he couldn't do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it, which is the military. So, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't get the sense that he had something, uh, you know, some particular hatred. He was, or just, just, he was just done and ready for the next. He was just done. Yeah. And he was, he was young and he, he managed to get a job that paid, far more than he should be making. And again, it was because of the lifestyle, the two weeks on and off, and, you know, actually a rather hard labor job that I'm sure it's, it's difficult getting people that, um, you know, can, right. can, can do that or, or wish to do that. Um, and how, how long did he stay in that job? And then what came after that? Uh, yeah, this, this is probably the, if I, if I can, think about hindsight being 2020 this is this is where i would say things started to get worse and it wasn't always necessarily apparent to me but you know again looking back after the fact um so he did that job probably six or eight months and he became very frustrated with um you know the fact that he basically have to turn his life off for these two week periods and he 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 struggled with appreciating the fact that it paid very well, and you know, frankly, without having a particular skill set or a particular you know some kind of training to to allow him to get that kind of salary, um, you know, he, he wouldn't. So he he spent a lot of time partying and and didn't like going, and it was just as COVID was happening, and they were canceling some of the. Um, some of the times that people were going out there and that the, the flip side, they were doing um, um, other events that if, if COVID was to break out on the rig, they would keep people there longer, which you know made him unhappy. So he chose to quit the job um, prior to having anything else lined up. And he did have a fair amount of money at that stage because, you know, he, he actually lived rather frugally. He was making, you know, a good amount of money. So, you know, he had enough money to sustain himself for maybe six months. Hmm. 
Yeah, so he, he, he left the, the oil rig job. He didn't have anything else. Um, and he showed zero, I wouldn't say zero. He showed extremely low initiative in trying to find something else. And there was a lot, and there is a lot of opportunities. It's, it's kind of an interesting part of the country that, you know, because of the refineries, the chemical plants, the amount of manufacturing here, you know, a, a college degree is not necessary to, to really earn a good living. And there's many apprenticeship right. programs. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, you know, you don't find that in some parts of the country. Um, you know, it, it still exists here if you're willing to, you know, um, go down that path. And he was unwilling to do any kind of apprenticeship program because it didn't pay enough. And it's like, well, you have to understand, Eric, it's, you know, you're, the apprenticeship program is you don't know anything and you're learning such that when it's over in a year or two, you know, you're, you're now, you have a skill set, which now pays a reasonable amount. And um, in fact, uh, Tesla opened a, a very large service center and I had been there a couple of times and they were just dying for people. And Eric was, you know, he was, he was very, and again, you met him, he was very charismatic, nice smile, presented himself well. It's like, my God, Eric, go there. You know, they need help people delivering cars. They're, they're building up their service team. You know, just your personality, the way that you get along with people, you're going to be there a month or two and someone's going to say, hey, did you ever think about, you know, I think opportunities would have been presented at, at the rate they were growing. Um, and he, he refused. And I think the reason he refused was at that point, potentially his drinking and partying was so bad that um, he just, he felt he couldn't hold a regular job is, is my sense. Again, hindsight looking back on this, because most right. of the things that I would suggest, and, and I, interestingly enough, at some point, both me and his brother stopped suggesting because Eric shut us off. I mean, right. it went from our weekly lunch and text and just stuff to no, zero. Eric shut us off. And Do you have just, and I know this is speculation and also hindsight, but somebody who goes to the military and then as soon as he came back was working this job, which was hard physical labor and all of that, it seemed like there was a, a turning point where there was kind of, and tell me if this is correct, like just a flatness of not really interested in pursuing things like this, the job and things. And you said the the drinking and things had risen to a, another level. Do you do you attribute any of what was going on? Was there a flatness? Was there a non-interest in things? And do you attribute any of that to COVID or, and I know this is speculation, but as dad looking in and looking back, did you have a like there was a sort of definitive, wow, things really started to go in a different direction. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's after him leaving that job and then realizing the financial situation. And he, he took a tremendous amount of pride that he always would pay for himself. And literally to the extent that if we went out to lunch, he wanted us to take turns, you know, and, and it's like, Eric, I'm financially, I'm a little better off than you, you know, I, I I have no problem in spending $8 on your, your lunchtime sandwich, you know? Yes. And he, he, he took a certain amount of pride in that. So I think COVID played a role 
for several reasons in that, um, you know, it really upset both trying to find a job and just the overall kind of tone of things. Um, just, just, you know, things weren't necessarily as positive. There was, there was mass, there was lockdowns, there was things. And, you know, I remember when he, he first left that job, you know, there was still some lockdowns and he was, he was very frustrated at times because he, he couldn't do things. He couldn't go out and, you know, things like that. So I would, you know, I think it's all kind of a, a stew of just a mix of things, you know, at least to my untrained uh, psychological perspective that, yeah. you know, kind of we're, we're starting to add up and it was, you know, potentially the alcohol combined with lack of income, which maybe led to staying up. Well, I know it did staying up late. Um, I, I noticed as we started to, um, you know, when we'd have our, our lunches, he would, he would often be late and he would also, and we're talking our lunches at noon, it would kind of morph into, you know, he would be late, he would be not well kept, he, it was clear he probably had a pretty rough night in terms of, you know, whatever he was doing, whether it, you know, gaming combined with drinking or, or out or whatever the, the case may be. Um, so, so it did you... feel that... No, go ahead. Sorry. No, it did feel so around, you know, that time that that um, this was this was starting to become an issue, and kind of the decision me and and my other son Bill made was, look, we we have to um, we have to back off in terms of you know trying to push him. You know, he he may just have to hit bottom before the switch goes on to motivate him to, you know, climb back on the horse, so to speak, because he clearly did not want or ask or even would accept any type of uh, assistance from, from anyone else. And what did you choose to do that just kind of, how were you with him once you stopped trying to push him in a direction or give any advice on moving well, forward with things? Um. You know, again, it was, it was, I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I looked at it as I'm going to accept whatever he says. If, if there's room to put a little influence, sprinkle a little influence in the conversation without necessarily being overt about it, that's what I was going to do. Um, and the same was true for, for my other son, you know, in, in their communications and everything. And, and our, our communication did resume to what I would call normal um, as far as the lunches go or, you know, the occasional dinners and, and that kind of thing. Um, was there yeah. ever a moment through all of that where you walked away from a lunch or a conversation with him and went, I'm actually really concerned about his physical safety and well-being? Is there... No, no, my, my, well, let me step back. Yes. And my concern was never one of suicide because he just, mm. he just, he always presented himself to me as, as even though things weren't going well for him, he, he still had a pretty upbeat personality. And, you know, I, I guess I, I, with my limited knowledge of suicide, I just, it never, I can honestly say it never occurred to me. 
where I was nervous was being in Houston and there's, uh, you know, there's violence. He, he got into a, a scuffle with someone at a bar and ended up in a fight with police and he was entirely intoxicated. That's what I was more concerned about. I mean, he became mindful about the DUI thing and he would Uber. So, you know, that took that off the table. But it, it just, you know, someone shooting them, stabbing them, beating them to death. Um, that's that kind of was in my mind because, you know, he was out late, sometimes by himself and just in places that probably he shouldn't be. It just it felt to me as though it, they were risks that I wouldn't take, you know. Yeah, so you were con concerned about something happening to him, but never, never the thought that he might take his own life. Never. I, I would say if you had if you had asked me prior to, you know, what's what's the percentage of that? I mean, zero. I mean, yeah, the the only one indication I have had, which interestingly enough, was the last time him and I had lunch together. So it was days before the event was he made a comment that, oh, he was telling me about when he was in the military. And I think, oh, I don't know. He had some kind of health problem going on. He went to the doctor. They did some blood work. And he said to me, he's like, boy, if I ever ended up with hepatitis, maybe it was his kidneys. I don't know what the issue was, but he's like, I killed myself. And I'm like, dude. I mean, Pamela Anderson's had hepatitis C for you know, 20 years. And yes. Medications. I mean, really? Yeah. And he just kind of chuckled, you know. And it, it, Eric had that kind of sense of humor that he would say things a bit, sometimes off the wall, you know. That yeah. You almost, I mean, there was times that I would, I would have to almost limit my exposure to him because he, he'd just be kind of silly. And, you know, at times, depending on my personal state of mind and what's going on with the rest of my life you know sometimes that's funny it's entertaining other times it's like come on let's move on you know yeah that kind of thing yeah um so let's talk about the day that he chose to take his life and you happened to be actually here visiting bill and i on the day that it occurred so on on my side of things we dropped you off at an airport and said our goodbyes and then you got on a plane and a, and a few hours later, Bill was getting a phone call. So can you talk about how you received the information of what had occurred? Sure, sure. Um, again, I was with you guys. Um, I flew back through um, Dallas. I had a connection in Dallas, which is typical for Southwest, and then just a small flight down to Houston. And the small flight piece is kind of interesting also. I'll, I'll tell you that in a second. It's normally a 45 minute flight, kind of interesting, something about that. Um, so when I landed, I, I turned on my phone. I noticed I had a voicemail you know, from, a, from an unknown local number, local area code. Um, so I listened to the voicemail and I forget, I think it was Harris County Health Department and I need to call them some organization within the county that we live. And I thought, well, it can't be my other son because he's, you know, he does live in Texas, but he's clearly in a different county. So it couldn't be anything with that. And this is a Monday around noon or a Sunday around noontime. 
So I was like, wait a minute, I'm getting a call from Lisa. Th- I, and I just had that feeling. I actually thought that someone had killed him at that point. Yeah. So the first thing that came to mind, because um, I, I kind of had a similar incident with my brother, actually, when he was about 20 years old, he was in Philadelphia and I was living with my parents. So I was a couple years younger and uh, he was actually murdered during the robbery. And I took the phone call that they said, you know, he's in critical condition. You know, we need to speak with your parents. So I kind of had a sense that something was up. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I called uh, the number. I spoke with, uh, I think it was a social worker who unfortunately does that for a living that has to call people and tell them about these things. Didn't have a lot of details, very few in fact, other than Eric did take his own life. It was in the general area of his apartment and that he jumped off um, some type of structure. And, you know, that's how he, he took his own life. And um, my reaction was one of complete um, surprise. And I almost went cold, I would say, that I did not react emotionally. I'm like, I, I, in fact, I called Bill, I told him, you know, your husband, Bill, not, not my son, Bill. I told him, uh, told him what I knew, you know, obviously it was very, um, sad. Um, I called my, then my, my other son, Bill and, or, and he was, um, Oh, just, just, just crying, screaming at the top of his lungs, just, just in a, you know, I, I guess it just, just his way of reacting. I mean, they were about two mm-hmm. years apart, Bill's older. And uh, interestingly enough, they got along great. I mean, yes, they were brothers. Did they push each other around here and there? Yes. But in general, they were, you know, they were as close as basically any brother I've seen or any siblings I've seen, you know, to, to, to even the personal level of, you know, knowing each other's dirty laundry and all that kind of, kind of fun stuff. Um, so what I said about that flight would, was interesting was, um, so I'm, I'm kind of in a state of shock. I get on the plane and what's normally a 45 minute flight because of storms being in the area, this was the middle of August, which, which is our hurricane season. The pilot ended up doing this huge loop around to get you know, to the airport. And the flight became an hour and a half flight, which was kind of interesting because what I found myself doing that whole flight was second guessing how the hell, and there's probably much stronger words, how the hell did I miss this? You know, me as a parent, probably the, you know, other than his brother, the closest person to this individual, um, you know, probably the closest person to this individual on, on earth, other than, you know, my son, my other son, um, how did I miss it? And, you know, that kind of led to the, the anger, the frustration stage, and then, um, you know, that kind of just morphed into the next couple of days of, of you know, I, I, was, I called my, my, my place of employment. Fortunately, they were extremely gracious and said, you know, take literally take as long as you need, you know, mm-hmm. whatever that means you decide, which I should probably keep in mind every now and then when I complain about work. Um, <laughs> so, so can you, were, I just, 
just real quick, going back to that, when you said you felt cold. Um, so here you are in the airport and you're not home in your home city yet. So you've got a, you've got this information that nothing prepares anybody for. You've already had two conversations with my bill and your bill and, you know, the reaction of your bill. So you've got all of this in your world while you've got this, I don't know if you'd call it numb, but just this trying to catch up to this. And then you're on the plane for an hour and a half. And the first place you go to is what did I do or how did I miss this? So I'm fast forwarding a little bit because I know you didn't work through that on that flight. Obviously, you had to go home and then go through all of the next things, which came after that. And what were some of the things that you did do to process through that looking for what you missed? Um, I think what I did was, you know, almost just replay history, you know, recent history, you know, what I knew about what Eric was doing, um, you know, what, what, what kind of signs were there? And, and I guess what particularly bothered me was, you know, there's various ways to kill yourself and, and some are, are, are pretty benign, you know, you take a bunch of pills and, you know, you go to sleep. It, to be on, to climb on top of a parking garage and look down, which, you know, I've done since then to see the exact location, it's scary. And, you know, for him to do that in such a way, I think that's, that's, uh, that's, to me, that was someone that had so much pain inside. And I think where I was struggling was how, how did I miss it? You know, mm. and could I have done something about it? Um, that's probably, you know, and, and I guess I don't have an answer for you in terms of a, a process, Marnie. It was just what started with that flight into probably many, many months later of just uh, a lot of soul searching, you know, something yeah. would come up, some, something would pop up or some event. It's like, should, should I have caught that? You know, like when he made the comment at the restaurant about killing himself if he had hepatitis, you know, should I have dug into that a little deeper? You know, and, and the other weird thing was he didn't, I didn't see his car at the at the restaurant and there was parking spaces out front he's like oh no i parked in this parking garage i'm thinking i even thought to myself it's like it's 100 degrees out why the hell would he even do that but again he didn't present himself in any type of right you know distress state um so i i just never you know so yeah i don't have an answer for you it was there was well no I, I think you did answer it really well because i i don't think there is an easy answer to it i think it's the way that people are we we look for all of these things and i it's a process and i think sometimes talking to people and then i think sometimes you have a bit of a better space with you're like no actually when someone's going to choose something they're going to choose something and you have moments of okay cool i get that now and then it pops up it's kind of life i get I, I think it's an when you have something like this occur there's never a final moment where it's done i would say um, this doesn't sound like a question but it actually is it's I, th I think it's, you just keep going sometimes and you just take one day, next moment at a time. Yeah, I would, I would yeah. completely agree with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think 
there's some things I did well in terms of quote getting over it and I don't think I'll ever be quote over it um I I personally reached a point oh about nine months after the event it was actually right around when my mom passed away which just was a few months before Eric and you know that's potentially another contributing factor he felt very bad that he he promised to go see my mom they were they were kind of buddies you know Eric he liked to talk to her she liked to talk to him and you know they, they kind of had a nice relationship and he really almost tortured himself because he did not live up to what he said he was going to do after getting out of the army to go visit my mom up in New Jersey. Um, and he brought that up several times and he brought it up with my son that that really bothered him that, you know, he made this commitment to go visit her and, and he never fulfilled it. And of course she passed away kind of in a, in a very sudden manner. So there wasn't a, you know, a, an opportunity to, you know, get on a plane and, and go fulfill that, that, promise or whatever you call it Um, yeah can you tell me about the so the few days the first few days after you land in houston you go home what were what were some of the things that you needed to do and that you did i mean you mentioned going to the spot where he jumped so talk about was that something you knew you wanted to do was that a something you made yourself do for a piece of closure with what occurred or what was that for you no, I'll tell you when I when I first got so I get home and I of course notify work and um, you know all that kind of good stuff and um, at that point it was it was in in addition to of course the emotional you know I can't believe this kid's dead um, it was you know some of the realities of the logistics of you know they're going to release him in a couple of days from the thing I mean yeah. I have to set up his cremation. It's like, I'm doing what? I know. Yeah. um, I mean, I don't know, but I I can't imagine. Yeah. The one thing I can say about that piece of it, Marnie, and I, I was so fortunate the place I chose, which I literally picked off of the internet um, with some good reviews. The person drawing a blank of her name, she was the kindest best person to have that job and in fact she said to me she says I I realize it's a suicide it was a suicide and I'm sorry and you know I I can help you out with some things like you know they're going to offer to give you his clothes because it's his she's like you probably don't want to take them because given the situation they're going to be covered in blood um she said but the other thing that's really interesting is during COVID they had to build a second crematory. She said the amount of young people taking their lives, they literally built a second crematory to handle this additional surge in suicides. Um, So that was part of it, you know, dealing with um, just the pure logistics of the situation, Um, you know, the next steps. The other part was what the hell happened? You know, Mm -hmm. the, the, I want to call it the detecting detective in me, but just the the curiosity of wait a minute, I, I got this much of the story, you know. I, I need to I need the story. And it was one of those situations where, you know, I called um, the police department, they put me in touch with the homicide group, and the guy told me probably more than he should, 
um, because of the situation, which which I truly appreciated. And he, he was actually ex-military and he, he kind of, I think because of that, took a little special interest in me in terms of, you know, maybe helping me a little bit because my son was ex-military. And um, he gave me a little more details, um, such as the exact location. Like I hadn't heard exactly the location before. Um, so that was that was kind of part of it. And then uh, he's like, well, you know, you're going to have to wait for the police report and the autopsy report. And, you know, that could take weeks for the autopsy report. The police report will probably be done in a couple of days. Um, but, you know, you'll have to wait and kind of ended it. So I, what I did was, um, you know, piecing together, he, he actually took a picture, a selfie of himself um, on top of that parking garage probably minutes before he, he took his life and the sunset, was, the sun was rising and he just put some caption under it, like, ah, like, I don't know, some like, that's nice. And um, I could, I could see the buildings in the background. Again, we lived probably wasn't even a mile away from each other. I knew the area well enough that I could see some of the buildings in the background and the business names. It's like, I have to put this together. And I, I kind of stumbled upon uh, the parking garage right next to his apartment. And interestingly enough, as I went to go in there, a security guard came out. And he's like, buddy, you can't go in there. And I'm like, well, and I explained the situation. And again, another very gracious person took me in his office. He was there when it happened. Hmm. His wow. office literally looks out onto the sidewalk where Earth landed. So he was able to fill me in with a lot of details um, in, in uh, you know, appropriate details, not, not, you know, hey, the blood splatter was this big, but just telling me what happened um, as far as the police showing up, the interaction. Essentially what happened was someone spotted him across the street, probably out for a morning walk around 7.30 a.m. on a Sunday, spotted him on top of this garage on the ledge and called the police. The police arrived literally minutes later per the report and one officer stayed on the ground trying to talk to him and make contact and they, they were conversing. The other police officer went in the car up the garage you know, trying to go up there with the idea of, you know, I guess they would get out and try to talk him down off the ledge, so to speak, well, literally in this case. And from what I hear was he was he was responding to the officer on the ground a bit. Um, and then at the same time, the other officer came up and when he saw the police car, he just he just jumped. And what I learned later, which was, you know, um, really kind of sad was he did not die right away. So he he fell because um, it, it was always kind of interesting. He listed the place of death. It was about a block away from there. So the ambulance did come, they did perform CPR, et cetera, et cetera. And I think he lived about another 20 minutes. And that really tore my other son up, the fact that, you know, he, he somehow lived in a suffering state. And it was many a times, even though he's a nurse and knows these things, my other son, me reminding him, it's like, dude, eight stories up on concrete, Eric was not conscious. He was not, he was not feeling any pain. 
Was his heart still beating? Yes. Was he breathing somewhat? Yes. But the reminder of, yeah, the not suffering. So would you say that for you, and I get everybody has a different way they process through these things, but for you, the, the piecing together those final moments gave you a sense of peace as much as possible, or was it, was it, what was that for you? Or was it the opposite? Did it actually create some torment? What was the result of going to? I think it created more, more torment because, you know, the other piece that then happened was, um, I went to his, you know, my son came down with his wife. We went to his apartment and the door was open. And, um, you know, Eric did write a couple of suicide notes and, you know, one of the things he said was he could never live, sorry, sorry to me that he could never live up to my expectations, which, you know, kind of hurts really bad because I don't, I don't have expectations, you know, my expectation is to be happy, you know, if he's happy, you know, regardless of sexual orientation, you know, the list goes on, I could care less. I mean, if he wants to you know, sweep the sidewalk for a living, you know, if, if that's, that's what makes you happy, then go for it. You know, that's as long as you're not hurting anyone else. Um, so I, I really didn't get any closure out of that whole kind of the detective side of it. I think it was more so the logical part of my brain wanting to just know, understand you know, what happened. That yeah. crime story on TV and seeing how this plays out. You know, just just trying to understand it as much as possible, and at the same time, it was kind of interesting. Um, Eric had had tried to re-enlist back in the army at some point, and they were really dragging the paperwork. I mean, for months, and I think that probably, you know, back to my stew of what went into his decision. I think that probably played into it that they were not responding. Interestingly enough, they readmitted him, him into the army the day after he died. Mm. They knew he died. So it was kind of like, hmm. But there was uh, an army chaplain who called me, uh, who was actually his job with the army, because I think all the military branches, but I'm, I'm most familiar with the army, has a problem with suicides. Yes. That is his job that he, he is, uh, he's looking for both, um, you know, why this is happening. He's looking for, um, you know, potential solutions, changes of procedures. He really wanted to understand. I mean, I, I probably had 10 calls with this guy. And he was, again, a, a chaplain by training and a psychologist. I mean, he was very good to talk to. Clearly he had a bit of an agenda. Um, in my opinion, in terms of kind of protecting the armies, not being responsive, you know. Um, so that kind of was an interesting piece to it also. Um, but no, I, I did not have any closure at that period. I was still, I was still hurting quite a bit. Yeah. So when you made the choice to not do any kind of a memorial service at that time, and that's something that you chose later. So talk about your process with that? What made you choose that? A couple things. One, you know, I I am fortunate that I have a few good people that I can trust deeply with discussions. And you may know one or two of them. 
Maybe. So, <laughs> you're one, actually. You are, oh, thank you. You are an influencer to me because uh, you, you do have a very interesting perspective that, um, you know, sometimes broadens my perspective on things. Um, the decision was basically, um, well, the, the, the offer was that since he was military, the, the army has, or the military has various national cemeteries all through the country. And they have one here in Houston. In fact, the, the funeral director is the one who told me about it and said, they, you know, they do a very nice ceremony. They have a plaque, they'll put the ashes in there. Um, <clears throat> it sounded like a great idea. I, I liked kind of the memorial idea. I liked that literally they bring <laughs> the old gents from the VFW over. They make a little side money on a hustle to do a, you know, a proper salute and a send off. Um, you know, it was nice to me. It was a nice tribute, but it didn't feel as though the time was right. It was like, we're all so, meaning we're all the people close to them. Um, you know, it's kind of a time of, you know, everyone just, you know, between the sadness, between every, all the unknowns and everything else. It's like, let's wait, let's wait for a time where we can celebrate him and do it, you know, kind of with an open and kind of looking at the clock or the calendar, his birthday was March 4th. And here we are kind of the end of August time frame. So it's like, It'll be about six months from now. What if we think about doing it then? You know, it'll be springtime and it, it truly is a gorgeous place. So they do a fantastic job. And um, so they, that was the decision that I personally don't have, you know, to me, um, you know, everyone has a different view of the afterlife, everything else. And, and some people, of course, want real burials and their bodies buried. I, I kind of feel that from a body standpoint, you know, once you're gone, you're gone. And to me, it was more symbolic or more of a tribute just to to have more of a menor memorial and also do it in a way that people could enjoy the goodness about Eric and talk yeah. about the funny things and, and enjoy it. A bit of, you know, it, it kind of struck me as interesting when I first heard about kind of celebrations of life. Yes. I thought it was a little, a little hippie-ish. In fact, I heard about it from one of my California uh, co-workers a few years ago. But then when he explained it to me, it's like, that's really kind of an interesting concept that instead of everyone crying and being so upset, that let's let some time pass and mm. literally do a bit of a celebration, you know, about the good things, you know, the good times, the good memories that, yeah. that hopefully will be with me until, you know, my days are up and, you know, just a way again to kind of memorialize our, you know, I think and it every also time... gives, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm oh, just, sorry. it gives, it gives people space to be with it the way that they are with it as well. I, I was, really grateful for your choice. I thought it was beautiful. And I thought it was just honoring of you and honoring of the people that were close to Eric, honoring of Eric. I thought it was all of it. And uh, there's so much pressure to grieve in a certain way when you have these events and it's supposed to, everybody's supposed to whatever, and everybody needs to be with it, how they be with it. And 
So I, I well, loved it. It's kind of interesting you say that, Marnie, because at first you and Bill were going to come out for this, you know, 15 minute event. Yeah. And I told Bill, I said, don't feel an obligation, buddy. You know how I feel about, you know, kind of the afterlife and everything else. And I, I very much appreciate the fact that you want to quote, be there for me, but and I, this is probably a month before, you know, the actual ceremony. It's like, I'm at a place where I'm good. Um, you know, I'll be there with my son, Bill, and, you know, it's just going to be a small little event. Um, so I left it up to you guys, but, but almost discouraged because I know that, you know, it, it's effort for people and some people feel that obligation. And it's like, you know, at that point, it's, I was, I was at a place where I felt you know, I, I was fine. And, and I think I shared some pictures with you guys and, and discussions and that kind of thing. And that was, that was perfectly fine. Mm. I want to go back because we kind of dropped off when we were talking about you had gone to the, the scene of where things occurred and that it was tormenting for you. So two questions. How, how did you move on from there? And then the other question, and this one is kind of always interesting to ask, but was there ever a moment where you did have a sense of relief, not obviously because he was no longer here, you want your son here as part of your world, but sense of relief of that he's no longer suffering and struggling with the things that he was leading up to his death? Well, maybe I'll answer that question first, and then then I'll answer the other one. But you might have to remind me because I might. I will. <laughs> that was a long um, essay. That was an essay question. <laughs> I gave you a lot. <laughs> um, to answer your question, yes, I think I I really believe for whatever reason, and I will never understand it. Um, it's kind of I kind of call it the Robin Williams situation that on the outside, in fact, I literally just watched a video that I was gonna to send to you guys that came up on my YouTube last night it was the first time he was on Johnny Carson. And it is so funny and he's so outrageous. And on the outside to us all was here was this highly successful, funny, loved, I mean, the list goes on, right? It's like he won the lottery, yeah. he has it all. Yes. And he takes his own life. And then sometimes you see it, you know, I see it, I pay attention to these things now, like with younger folks and, you know, someone that just seems on the surface just to have everything and takes their own life. And the same is true with Eric. I mean, for all his, quote, struggles in the world, at least the ones I know about, um, you know, it's like, okay, you don't have a job, you can fix that. You know, there's, there's things, you're not getting in the army, well, get a lawyer and make some. So for someone to do that, and I think there is some pain that I will never, and I can only speak for her. I think he clearly had some deep, deep pain that whatever this is around us, it just didn't work for him. It doesn't, it didn't work for him. You know, and I don't know if there was a particular trigger. I have no clue, um, but it, it it feels to me that um, again, I, I kind of put it in a logical light that if you're willing to do something so extreme to to take your life in what I would call a pretty brutal way, um, 
life's got to be pretty bad for whatever's going on in, in inside yeah. your brain. So it reminds I, I, me of that. You remember the movie Tombstone with uh, it was Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp. Is that his name? But yep. When when Doc is dying in the hospital, he makes and this is a paraphrase, but he basically says there are some people for whom this world will never be right, and I, I get that is true. Yeah, or some. I I, I yeah. completely. And it it took some time to. You know, because I've been, you know, fortunate, you know, personally done, done, you know, reasonably well career wise, financially, everything else. I've, you know, fortunately have good health and all that kind of stuff. So I've, the world works for me, you know, I have my bad days as we all do, but the world works. And I, 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 up until this event, I really struggled to understand how it could ever be so bad that you would kill yourself. I could have always understand the fact of maybe killing someone else i mean it, and what i mean about that is i like, know I'm, trust me i get I'm, it <laughs> i'm not a murderer but it's like if if something was so bad the source of that badness i could see me taking action against that source i yes. could never say i i could never with the exception i give the example that of you know terminal pancreatic cancer and excruciating pain, then I am more right. than happy to end things at that moment. Um, sure. So yeah, I think I think for Eric, and, and it actually, I think that's part of the healing process, Marnie. And mm -hmm. I think part of the, and I guess that's your other question, how did I kind of get through it? You know, what was my process? And I think one thing I kept in mind, and I, I want to really, actually when I, when I got custody of kids and divorced, you know, their, their birth mother. Um, it was a, it was a very miserable period, you know, a lot of legal issues, uh, just on and on. Um, I, I kind of learned that as time goes on, time does heal. I wouldn't say all wounds, but most of them. And for me, there was a certain part of get through the day. Next day is going to be just a little bit better. Or maybe it's going to be shittier the next day, but the day after that's going to be a little bit better. And I knew deep down, I, I didn't know whether this is a, a five-year journey, a five-month journey, but it was, I felt at some point I would emotionally kind of be at a place where, you know, I, I, I don't, um, I can say I don't feel internal pain over the incident anymore. I mean, I, I truly miss the guy, you know, but yes. I don't, I don't, um, I don't have internal kind of pain if that, that makes sense. You know, that, that I think at this point, it's almost, you know, I kind of believe in energy and, you know, I think he's probably somewhere floating around in some form, some way. Um, and he probably would want both, well, everyone, everyone that knew him to go on with their lives. And he made a decision regarding his, which was his decision to make. And, um, you know, I, I sometimes hear people that, you know, maybe their son was murdered or something else. And they say, you know, I'll, I'll never get over this. And it's like, well, maybe, I know it's easy to say, but at the, the end of the day, it's like time, life sucks at times. Life is yes. just 
brutal at times. And I guess you, you can kind of make the decision that at some point, and believe me, I don't know the magical secret. For me, it was, again, my mom's anniversary of her death. For some reason, I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up an awesome thing, though, because there is this, I mean, for when you deal with what you have dealt with, when anybody deals with a similar situation, you really are faced with, do I stop living and suffer for the rest of my days? Or do I, as you said beautifully, get up every day and here's the next day and I'm going to do the next day until you find that space where there's some, I'll say some relief from it and continue to live your life. I mean, do not is the loss of another life, even if that body's still here on the planet. So how about not? And I actually, I talked to a lady just a couple of weeks ago and her son was murdered. And she said to me, my friends keep asking me why I'm not suffering more. And she said, it's, I'm not, I should suffer because my son was brutally murdered. So I should continue to daily suffer is their point of view. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. But she said, you know, it's not that it wasn't. She said two years. It was exactly what you said, Steve. I had got up every day and I kept myself busy or I did the next thing that was in front of me or I called a friend, but I was committed to, I will still live. I'm still here. I'm going to still live. And so she kept soldiering through till she got to that space. So very similar to what you say. Um, you've said many things that I think are helpful to anybody who's kind of walking a similar path that you are with losing someone whether it be suicide or in any other way, is there any other things that you would say to somebody just to kind of encourage whatever they might be going through? Yeah, I kind of thought about this morning because, you know, even you a couple of times said that, you know, I did a great job getting through this and I, I feel like I didn't do a great job, you know, and I think part of that's, you know, just, I, I truly have a belief we, we all could be a little better, you know, obviously we're not, we're not by any means perfect. Um, you know, some of the things that I think did help and I would, I think is probably pretty universal is that if you have a support network or even a not so strong support network, don't be ashamed of it. Um, just, just, and the reason I say that is one of the helpful things was I was I was open with my my company as to what happened, you know, very open. And um, one of the folks I work with who happens to um, to live in South Africa called me one day. His name's Bruce. And um, he's like, I want to tell you a story. And he proceeded to tell me a story about his wife and his wife taking her own life. And some of the just to have another person that had been through a similar event and the way you know clearly it was years before so bruce bruce had gone through let's call it his his painful or healing phase however you want to term it um you know just to to feel um and to hear and you know i'm not one really for support groups i think probably you know, there's, he was kind of a support group for, for me, yeah. you know, it was one person yeah. I knew that I trusted and I liked and we connected 
and probably, you know, had half a dozen or so, you know, deep conversations over, especially initially when the, the you know, the pain was the greatest. Um, so I guess for me, it's, it's, you know, there, there, there shouldn't be shame in it as, you know, uh, you shouldn't feel shame as a, as a parent or, you know, I'm using the parent example, you know, for suicide, especially, I mean, clearly the person yes. you spoke with whose son got murdered, that's a bit of a different situation. Um, I think the other thing was, and this is probably the hardest thing at all, try not to take the blame, <laughs> you know, internally. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, again, I think suicide is probably a little different than a murder because clearly, you know, you, if someone chooses to, to shoot your child, then there's probably not a lot you can do about it. Um, right. But in this particular case, you know, as you know, directly someone that interacts with your child, it's, you know, you, and it's, that is a battle, you know, as much as, yeah. you know, I talked about the flight home, that was, that was phase one of, oh, 2000 phases of just, you know, popping up in your mind in the middle of the day. Like, what if I, no, nah, I, I yeah, I guess I guess my my thought there is, you know, I think you can fall down that rabbit hole um, probably pretty easily, and I I somehow somehow was mindful of it, maybe because it was so clear with our, you know, there was no prior attempts, there was no outward sign of depression. So for me, it was it was pretty easy to say I didn't really miss anything. So. Every time that blame switch came on, I was able to turn it off. But at the end of the day, especially for an adult, you know, that chooses to take their own life. I mean, they're an adult choosing to take their own life, you know, and um, what you just what you just said right there actually really sums it up. They're an adult choosing to take their own life. And I just highlight that because even if it somebody is well, they were depressed and they they would cut themselves and they did all of these things. So I should have been able to help them. The reality is we choose, we, we all choose. And in the craziest and hardest of ways, coming to terms with that is actually an honoring of their choice, even though you really wish they would have made a different one. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you're absolutely right. And that's, that's kind of back to my, my statement that if, it, for me, it's that visual of that building and, you know, the thought of jumping off it onto a concrete sidewalk is, you know, that for someone to do that without being pushed, <laughs> yeah. the amount of pain going on inside is, is something that, you know, I can't even imagine, I can't even experience or, or have anything close to that, you know, in terms of, nah. so I think, again, you know, them making that choice, um, as much as it sucks, you know, and the, I think the other thing for me to keep in mind, and it's still, you know, I still definitely miss them quite a bit because there'll be times, you know, memories certain pop up and everything else. It's like trying to focus on the memories as a good thing, not like, again, to fall down that rabbit hole of, you know, I miss them so much. I'm so sad, this, that, and the other thing. It's well, what if you you kind of turn it around and it's like you, you kind of focus on more maybe you know you force yourself kind of to, to think about a, a positive instead of yes. negative and it's it's again 
I would put a big try in front of that because it's, it's, uh, you know, none of this is, at least in my mind, I, I think you said it well, there's no rules, you know, it's, I think the, the only real rule is you just have to realize that you're still alive and just, just day by day, you know, as, as much yeah. as it, as much as it truly sucks. Cause I, you know, I kind of look back and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hard on myself because I, I lost focus on, you know, eating well, working out. I mean, I just, I kind of just didn't give a shit to tell you the truth. I was existing yeah. for some period of time and I just, you know, I, I just didn't have a motivation to really, really do anything above and beyond, you know, what, what yeah. I should be doing. Um, Cause I hear some people that have been through these kind of experiences and maybe they, they really embrace exercise, which actually I did during, you know, the first nasty divorce was I, you know, that was my thing. It was exercise and it was, so I think, I think, you know, again, I don't have any of the answers other than, you know, what may help. And that's, I've heard some people I've really, you know, had, again, kind of putting your, your focus on something productive. And that might be, you know, growing plants in the yard. For me, it was, I had recently started a new job. So I think they probably got someone that was working way more than they, they paid for at that period, because, you know, I like what I do. So for me, it was probably, I probably put more effort into that. Um, so yeah. maybe in terms of, you know, whatever, wherever you can find some accomplishment, whether it's exercise, whether it's who knows what, you know, maybe that's something to move towards. I heard one time that um, basically it all comes down to just the commitment to keep moving. And some days you'll run and some days you'll walk and some days you'll crawl, but it's, it's okay. And I, and then the other piece of it is to really just go easy on yourself and celebrate when you, when you've, had a move forward day and then if you've had a fall back day that's okay too because we're people and we process through as we do but get up and keep going and you've you've said a lot of things Steve that I get are very helpful to people and I am well it's always a pleasure to talk to you because you're my friend and I'm grateful for that and just to uh be vulnerable with this topic and share your story I I um I'm grateful. So thank you for this conversation. Morning. I'm actually, I'm, I'm not going to let you end it quite yet because I have two <laughs> other little suggestions. Well, say it. Go. Keep going. Actually, I have one other suggestion. Um, hey. I did not seek any type of psychologist or psychiatrist or social worker or any type of healthcare worker um, assistance. My son, on the other hand, did. And it was extremely useful for him. Um, he, he, you know, was through the army. His first person was not so good. Um, so he found someone else and, and it clicked. And it really worked for him because he was struggling with the why of the whole thing. You know, he's a, he's a kid too. And it's kind of like, you know, this doesn't happen to to kids and you know you're supposed to get old and die not be 23 years old you know or whatever it was at the time so i think in retrospect if if there is one thing me personally i could have done differently and i don't know whether it would have helped 
is I probably should have explored talking with someone. You know, does that mean my, my quote, healing period would be shorter, whether it be longer, whether it, I have no clue, but I guess in retrospect, the only thing that, you know, I didn't do that I probably should have tried was that. Um, again, no idea whether it would have helped. Um, I think it probably depends on, you know, the person and, you know, so many variables, but, um, yeah. And you know, to that, Steve, though, even even if it wasn't from the sense of getting some direction or counsel, I get there's a lot of healing in talking about your person and just talking about them. You know, it's it's interesting when it comes to death, people always they sort of sometimes think they can't bring up the person that's gone or they don't want to cause any pain or open a wound. But I hear most people, and I can say for myself too, not having gone through nearly anything like you have, but you want to talk about because that's how you keep them with you. You want to speak of them. It's that, and it's also it's if anything I can say, you know, it, it was it was I, I I probably on the surface was was much better than I felt for some period of time, you know, in in, mm -hmm. in our act interactions. Um, so if, if anything of this conversation is of any use, it's kind of like awesome. You know, that's kind of how I look yeah. at it. Yeah. So. Cool. You said there were yeah. two things. No, there was two, but I said the one already, you know, one of my, <laughs> one of my regrets okay. was not cause I, I did this again. I think I spoke about it during, you know, my, my first nasty divorce was, you know, forcing myself to really work out really quite a bit on and very regularly and that helped get me through I think that helped and um I don't know again it, it's kind of like the psychologist that would it have made a sizable difference in terms of quote the healing process I don't know but it, it's one of those looking back um you know having got back into you know, a, a regular kind of regime, you know, routine of, of exercise. That's one of those things that, you know, maybe I could have done differently, I think, but I, I really just didn't feel it, you know, at that period in time. So I don't know. That was just some thought that I had that, you know, you get in these situations or really any situation, kind of any difficult situation, you look back and say, well, what could maybe I've done differently, you know, and that's, yeah. The psychologist and also, you know, at least trying. And, and again, maybe both would have been complete failures or a waste of time. But by not exploring them, I just don't know. Yeah, you know? I think it's great advice. And I mean, there's just even the getting up and moving your body versus sitting on the couch. You clear out your head, you clear out whatever, you, you focus on something else. And so I think it's it's very good advice. Yeah, you, push, you see that push now. through sometimes when you really don't feel like it, just like do it anyway. <laughs> well, it's funny the saying that that I heard that kind of became my mantra a little bit was fall forward. Yeah, I you like know, that. it's like it's that. you know, you're going to fall, you're going to fall a lot, but try to fall forward, meaning pick up a little, a little, a little bit of ground, you know, with that fall. Yeah, I like it. Well, thank you, Steve. Very grateful. Absolutely, Marnie. Always a pleasure and to speak with you. You also. And thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time.